Faith Matters Podcast. I'm your host, John Morgan. I'm John Moorhead. I'm the host of the Multi-Faith Matters Podcast, and my guest today is a returning guest, Catherine Wessinger. And uh, we're going to be talking today, this this month, uh, when this uh, conversation was recorded, uh, April of 2023, is the 30th anniversary of the uh, tragedy in Waco, Texas, with the Branch Davidians. And Catherine uh, has great expertise in this area. I'll go ahead and read her bio Catherine Wessinger is the Reverend H. James Yamauchi Society of Jesuits Professor of the History of Religions at Loyola University in New Orleans. She is the author of How the Millennium Comes Violently, From Jonestown to Heaven's Gate, editor of Millennialism, Persecution and Violence, Historical Cases, editor of the Oxford Handbook of Millennialism, editor of three Branch Davidian survivor autobiographies for Bonnie Haldeman, David Koresh's mother, Sheila Martin, and Clive Doyle. She has served as a co-general editor of Nova Religio, the Journal of Alternative and Emergent Religion since the year 2000. She has written a number of book chapters and a journal article on the Branch Davidian Federal Agents Conflict Outside Waco, Texas. Among the most significant is the 2009 journal article, Deaths in the Fire at the Branch Davidians, Mount Carmel, Who Bears Responsibility? Again, in Nova Religio and a chapter titled The FBI's Cult War Against the Branch Davidians in the 2017 edited volume, The FBI and Religion. Her YouTube channel, which goes by the, the title, aptly enough, Catherine Wessinger, is devoted to interviews with people involved with the Branch Davidian and the federal agent conflict at Mount Carmel Center outside Waco, Texas, as well as video footage of the 1993 conflict and a video past Branch Davidian memorials. She is one of four scholars who are featured in the 2020 film titled The Waco Branch Davidian Tragedy, What Have We Learned or Not Learned, produced by the Reunion Institute and published on her YouTube, YouTube channel. The separate chapters of this nearly three-hour film are also available on that YouTube channel, and folks can look in the uh, podcast notes for this episode and find this bio and the links to her books and her YouTube page and all that for follow-up, and I encourage them to to take a look at all of that. Catherine, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thank thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. I'm imagine thank you, thank you for inviting me. <laughs> of course. I imagine with this area of focus, you're you're very busy these days. Yes, it's very intense right now, uh, in terms of keeping up with uh, news articles and watching the current uh documentary on Netflix and also there are several other documentaries coming out. And the Dodo Brothers, who are writers and directors, they produced a dramatization of, it was a six-part dramatization back in 2018. It aired first on the Paramount Channel, and then it went to Netflix, where it got a lot of viewers. Well, um, I think it's April 14th, they'll have a, um, what they're calling a second season of that dramatization, and it's titled Waco, the Aftermath. And their first series, uh, the Waco series, was very good. It was dramatized. Not everything in it is actually factual, but um, they capture sort of the um, they capture the conflict and and the sense of things. And they also humanize uh, the Branch Davidians as well as federal agents. And that's really important because in so much of the media treatments, the Branch Davidians are dehumanized. So anyway, we'll be looking for their second season in April around the 14th. And also there are other documentaries that are coming out too. So there's a lot to keep track, lot to keep track of right now. Well, folks may be wondering why we're, we're talking about this, not only because of the anniversary, but because we, we've learned quite a bit since the original uh, tragedy. Um, it continues to have relevance in a number of different areas. And you're going to be talking about this, but before we dive into some of those specifics, what is your personal interest and passion in pursuing this over the years? 
well, um, back in 1993, I was, um, at that time, I was the chair of the New Religious Movements Group uh, at the American Academy of Religion. But I was, at that time, I was relatively new to the study of new religious movements. You know, I had done some research on millennialism uh, when I uh, wrote my dissertation, but I really, at that time, I wasn't pursuing that avenue of research. And but I was also teaching courses on religions of the world. So I was in class when this event started. The, in other words, the April 19th uh, FBI tank and CS gas assault. And in class, I, I happened to write the name Branch Davidians on the board. And one of my students said, well, no, the um, FBI, they're running tanks through the building and spraying gas into the building. And now it's on fire. And in his words, he said, no one is coming out. Well, uh, we know now that we know that nine people made it out, but 76 people, uh, including about 22 children, died in that fire. And um, and then when I got back to my office, I had a call from a PBS news show back then. It was called the McNeil Era Report, and they asked me to go on um, on the show that night and explain what happened. And I said, no, you know, I've been in class. I, I don't know what happened. I have no idea what happened. But then when I did get home and I watched the show, they had uh, an anti-cult person talking about it, giving very easy answers. They're a cult. This is what cults always do. They commit, they commit mass suicide. So we know exactly what happened. And of course, that's a very simplistic explanation. And that's the problem with calling groups a cult because it promotes the assumption that they're all the same when they're not all the same. Even when something on the rare occasions when something violent happens, they're still not all the same. You have to study all the details and the dynamics of everything that went into um, that final event, that final tragic event. And um, so that was a turning point for me. And it, um, uh, made me resolve to um, be more available to reporters. I still don't like to get on television, especially if I don't know what I'm talking about, but I will talk to print news reporters and try to walk them through, um, you know, being cautious with their conclusions and not reaching for the easy explanations. You know, the, the cult frame is so easy, you know, it's an immediate explanation. And and again, it dehumanizes the people involved. It dehumanizes the children. You know, the during the Branch Davidian siege, well, well, first of all, I'll mention how it started. Okay, so on February 28, 1993, the age, some agents with the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, there's about a little more than 75 agents who were tasked with carrying out what law enforcement agents call a dynamic entry into the residence, the Branch Davidians residence at what they call Mount Carmel Center. And um, the ATF agents wanted to serve uh, two warrants, one for David Koresh's arrest and the other, it was a search warrant. And they were searching to see if semi-automatic rifles uh, had been converted to automatic rifles. And it was in fact legal to do that if people um, you know, filled out the proper application, got a license, paid a fee, you know, in other words, a tax. It was legal, but what, um, and it was legal to have those firearms if those steps had been taken. And so, um, you know, tracing packages through UPS, uh, ATF agents thought that while well, they had ordered a lot of semi-automatic rifles, and uh, they had also ordered um, gun kits, kits of parts, consisting of parts that could be used to convert those weapons. And um, an undercover investigation had never turned up any evidence that he had under had those weapons. And in fact, he had through his gun dealer, his legal gun dealer, his legal li legally licensed gun dealer, dealer, David Koresh had invited ATF agents to come and inspect his weapons. But instead, they attempted to carry out this um, dynamic entry. And uh, David Koresh was warned ahead of time. And so they were ready. They had prepared because it was part of their theology that they would be attacked and killed by um, 
you know, federal agents, um, agents of the government. And so somehow the shooting started. There are different stories about who shot first, but you ended up with a shootout in which um, six, uh, six branch Davidians ended up dying that day and four ATF agents were killed. And then after that, uh, the next day, the FBI comes in and um, takes over the siege, takes, you know, takes charge of everything. And um, you had uh, several teams of FBI agents. Well, you had the FBI negotiation coordinators. And we learned a few years ago from a news article, I think it was in the Dallas Morning News, that most of the negotiators were police officers from Austin. And we didn't know that for decades. We thought all those negotiators were FBI agents. But it turns out the FBI agents were there supervising the police negotiators. So they did most of the work. And, um, and then you had another team of FBI agents called the hostage rescue team. And so that's their, the SWAT team. Um, they have special forces training. They ended up, they have a tank division, an armored tank division. So they had tanks out there. And then also I would say another segment of FBI agents out there were um, special agents in charge. So the way I understand it, a special agent in charge who's FBI is like the agent in charge of the FBI in that state. So the special agent in charge of uh, FBI in Texas was a man based in San Antonio and his name was Jeffrey Jamar. And so he became the on-scene commander. Uh, but special agents in charge from other states, other cities came in to help out. And so one was very visible because he conducted most of the press briefings. His name was um, uh, Bob Ricks. And then there were other special agents in charge also helping out behind the scenes. So, um, but to get back to your question, I, um, I just don't want to see another uh, apocalyptic community uh, end up like this. And um, so after what happened in 93, I, I did research it. And, and at that time I researched the case and compared it to some other cases and at that time, I was using primarily uh, newspaper sources and newspaper articles. And so I have a Ranch Davidian chapter in my book, How the Millennium Comes Violently. But, um, but before that, a few years later after Waco, there was the uh, uh, Montana Freeman standoff. And I think that was in 1996. And the special agent in charge, not the special agent in charge, the uh, FBI negotiation coordinator, who uh, his name is Gary Nestner. He's, he's actually appearing in the Dodo Brothers, their first um, series. And he'll, his character is played by Michael Shannon. He'll be in, this, in the new uh, second series that's coming out. And uh, he was negotiation coordinator for the first 24 days through March 24th. And he was protesting all of these aggressive actions that the hostage rescue team was uh, taking. Every time, no aggressive actions were taken if children were sent out. But whenever adults came out, the hostage rescue team would do something aggressive to punish the remaining adults. So they would turn the electricity off. They turned it on and off a few times. Finally, they just turned their electricity off. They used their tanks to or. CEVs, combat engineering vehicles, to move cars, crush cars, and then move them. They started shining bright spotlights at the night um, to the um, in the direction of the Branch Davidians. And then also, um, at one point, um, I think it was March 22nd, seven adults came out. That was the largest number of adults who came out in one day. It was a huge success. And then that night, um, a special agent in charge on duty during the night started playing all sorts of high decibel sounds and irritating, you know, irritating sounds and music toward the Branch Davidians all night long. So this is stress escalation. <laughs> 
you, you uh, FBI agents, FBI negotiators know that in order to negotiate successfully with a what they call a barricaded subject, you have to you have to lower the stress. Let the person get some rest. Let the person be able to think more clearly. But what was going on, the hostage rescue team with the approval of the on-scene commander and also my research search has shown also with the approval of officials in a command center in the Hoover building in Washington, D.C., because they were supervising everything that was happening there. Um, so this stress escalation uh, was occurring consistently with the approval of people in D.C. in the Hoover building and the commander on the ground. Uh, big question is why, you know, why? Because it doesn't make any sense. So back to uh, negotiation coordinator Gary Nestor, he protested these actions that were undermining the negotiations and he was taken off the case. But um, with the Montana Freeman, uh, he was the negotiation coordinator at that time. And by that time he had become like the head negotiator at the um, FBI. I don't know what his exact title was, but the Montana Freeman case, and they were not labeled a cult. They were labeled a um, anti-government group. They're, they were sort of the prototypes for what we know, people who now call themselves sovereign citizens, you know? They don't recognize the authority of the federal government. And that that standoff had a very low key tactical presence. They were there, you know, FBI agents were there, but they weren't very visible. And the negotiations took 81 days and they resorted to very creative negotiation tactics, bringing in third party intermediaries. There were two children inside with the Montana Freeman. It was a farm. And as I was watching the news, um, one night on the news, I saw the two children outside playing, two little girls. And at that point, I gave a sigh of relief and I knew that the FBI was gonna stay there until uh, everybody came out safely. Because during the Branch Davidian standoff, um, uh, we never saw the children. We never saw the adults. The Branch Davidians made a video of themselves and you could see the children, but, and that was sent out to the FBI, but it was not released to the press because uh, this video, which it, now it's on, you can find it, uh, segments of it in YouTube, it's titled um, Inside Mount Carmel. You see that the Branch Davidians are rational people. They think rationally. They have a religious worldview. The children are adorable. Okay, and they're innocent, and a lot of the uh, teenagers are just innocents, you know, in there, and um, but uh, but we never saw those videos of the people during the French Davidian siege. But all right, so how do, how did I get into all this? That was your original question. So um, during the Montana Freeman standoff. Some of us, myself and some other scholars, Phil Arnold, Dr. J. Philip Arnold, and um, Dr. Jean Rosenfeld, and um, um, we had the opportunity to give some advice or convey some advice to the um, FBI agents there. Um, it wasn't easy to talk to them. You know, I talked to them on the phone a couple of times because we just have totally different worldviews, you know. We're religious study. Oh, and they also had um, Professor Michael Barkin. Uh, the three of us, Phil Arnold and Gene Rosenfeld and myself, we were working together, but um, Michael Barkin was in communication with them directly. He was not working with our little group. And um, it was during that siege that I had to come up with a fast, <laughs> a fast thesis about how you could get these anti-government people out safely everybody come out safely including the children and um so i use a um understanding of ultimate concern not not the definition of ultimate concern that paul tillich uses that he formulated when he coined that term but you know uh 
my advisor in graduate school defined ultimate concern is what being what is the most important thing in the world uh, to the believers. So in other words, it's the goal of their worldview, their religious system. And so the advice that we gave, that our team gave, was that the FBI negotiators needed to find a way for the Montana Freeman to stay true to their ultimate concern, which was to overthrow the United States, no less, but uh, but still come out and be taken into custody. And after long negotiations, that's what happened. That's what they did. I, I don't I don't take credit for it because uh, later the commander on site called me and he said that um, our input had no no effect on the outcome. And um, and I believe that because we were still operating with very different worldviews, and um, and and you know we just had different perspectives on the situation. But uh, um, nevertheless, through good negotiation techniques, that's what they ended up doing, in my my view, that they found they were able to make an offer to the freemen so that they could come out and um, stay true to their ultimate concern and still be taken into custody. And they were told that once they got into court, they would be able to present their arguments against the validity of the federal government. And of course that didn't happen. You know, Once they were in court, they were not able to speak from their own worldview. But um, that's what should have been done with the Branch Davidians. You know, um, two, two Bible scholars, um, Dr. James Tabor at uh, University of North Carolina in Charlotte, and Dr. J. Philip Arnold at Reunion Institute in Houston. And, and Dr. Arnold drove to Waco a few times and attempted to communicate directly with FBI agents. And predominantly they would not listen. They would not take in that input. But what they were saying, Dr. Arnold and Dr. Tabor were saying is that you had to, un, you had to make an offer within the worldview of the Branch Davidians, especially David Koresh, to enable him to be willing to come out and surrender and be taken into custody. And then all the other people would come out. Um, so after all that, I decided that if I ever get called on to give uh, advice to the FBI again, I needed to do, I needed to know more about what I was talking about. And so that's when I moved on to edit um, a historical volume um, Millennialism, Persecution, and Violence contains very good chapters by the by the authors. And that's when I finished up my book, How the Millennium Comes Violently. And then I went on to, I was invited to edit the Oxford Handbook of Millennialism. So um, I never set out to be an expert in this area, but um, I don't want to see any other people die like that. Uh, due to actions of American law enforcement agents. Well, of course, after the event, uh, there has been an investigation and there's been, people have been looking at the details for, for many years and you're one mm -hmm. of those folks who've been looking into it. What what new things have we learned that might have might supplement the previous narratives or complicate that? What, what kinds of new things have we learned as we look closely at it? Well, a number of things. Uh, first of all, the ATF raid was not necessary because David Corey should invited the ATF come, to come look at his weapons. The um, and Dr. Tabor and Dr. Arnold will tell you this: that when they uh, were rebuffed by FBI agents, and actually um, they they um, engaged in a theological conversation on the radio with the intent that David Koresh and the Branch Davidians would listen to it, and they did. And uh, the day, the Branch Davidians were thinking that it was, that they were waiting to see if it was, if the time had come for them to be martyred by the agents of the government based on David Koresh's interpretation of the fifth seal and the book of Revelation. And I pulled the fifth seal up here, let me get it. So, you know, in the book of Revelation, there's a figure sitting on a throne and in his hand, he's holding a book or a scroll sealed with seven seals. 
And as each seal opens, apocalyptic end time events happen. And um, and so David Koresh and the other Branch Davidians were convinced that they were in the fifth seal. And um, the fifth seal begins in um, Revelation. Let's see what chapter is. It's chapter six. It starts with verse nine and goes through 11. And it says, and when he had opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of them that were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, dost thou not judge and avenge our blood on them that dwell on earth? And white robes were given unto every one of them, and it was said unto them that they should rest for a little season until their fellow servants also and their brethren that should be killed as they were, should be fulfilled. So, and of course they believe that after their deaths, they would be resurrected and Koresh would be the Christ for the end time. And the resurrected, the branched, the deceased branch Davidians would be the, uh, would be in Christ's army of the 200 million martyrs of all the ages who would come and, carry out judgment here on earth of people on earth. Um, and so the branch Davidians during the siege were, they thought they were in that waiting period of the fifth seal. Some of their members, six of their members had been killed or had died on February 28th. It turns out, and this was thanks to the um, book published by uh, Kenneth Newport. He did a lot of good um, archival research in the um, archive at um, Baylor University. And he showed that according to David Korsh's theology, um, they were expecting to be martyred during Passover. So they were waiting for Passover. They were waiting for Passover week. And nothing happened during Passover week. So Passover week ended on April 13th. But David Koresh had heard the radio broadcast by Dr. Tabor and Dr. Arnold on April 1st. And um, anyway, at various points during the siege, um, David Koresh and his right-hand man, Steve Schneider, asked that um, David Koresh be able to discuss the Bible's prophecies with Dr. Arnold or Dr. Tabor or both. That was never permitted. But on the day after Passover, on April 14th, David Koresh sent out a letter uh, saying that God had permitted him for the first time to write down his commentary on the seven seals of the book of Revelation and that um, he was going to start doing so right away. And, um, and so that was on April 14th. On April 16th, David Koresh reported to a negotiator that he completed his uh, composing his commentary on the first seal. So that was two days for the first for one seal. But the electricity was off in the house, in the residence, and all they had was a battery operated word processor and they needed batteries. They needed batteries and the kind of old style typewriter ribbon things like that. So the Branch Davidians started asking for uh, the supplies so they could type out the manuscript because Koresh had said that once the manuscript was in safekeeping with Dr. Arnold, Dr. Tabor, then he would come out and be taken into custody. So the Branch Davidians continued to um, ask for those supplies so they could type it up. He's continuing to dictate his commentary uh, to whoever was taking that down. What I notice in the FAI log, um, they have something called the major event log of the siege. And what I notice is that the hostage rescue team during these days increased the um, aggressive actions to intimidate and cause fear among the Branch Davidians. If anyone walked out of the, stepped out of the house, FBI agents, hostage rescue teams would throw flashbang grenades at them. And they're, they flash, they bang, they're, they're very loud. If, it, if one hits you directly, it can hurt or kill you, okay? Um, and so it's a very frightening thing to have a flashbang grenade thrown directly at you. So that happened more than once. On one occasion, in the middle of the night, while David Koresh was composing his 
um, commentary on the seven seals, a, a tank came up, probably a CEV. It came up and just hit the building right where a man was sleeping. <laughs> you know, he was in a bunk bed. He had his head to the wall and a tank just comes up and pushes, you know, smashes the wall and pushes it in a little bit. Fortunately, that man uh, was not injured, but he could have been. But uh, but even that very night when the tank hit the building, um, Koresh gets on the phone to the negotiators and he says, he talks about the progress he's making on writing his um, manuscript. So they kept asking for the supplies they needed to type out the manuscript and then, but the special agent in charge, Jamar, did not let the these supplies go into the building until late in the evening on April 18th. And that's the day before the assault. Um, and then I'll just jump ahead. After the fire started, six hours after a tank and gas assault, a woman jumped down out of a window from the first from the second floor, and in her pocket was a floppy disk with that his commentary on the first seal saved. So it looked like he was proceeding with his exit plan. And I would argue his exit plan was a way to he found a way in the statements in the book of Revelation to make it into a prophecy so he could come out, uh, maintain his charisma in the eyes of his followers. I think that was very important to him. And uh, and then they could all come out. And what what Tabor and Arnold had argued in their radio broadcast was that waiting period in the fifth seal would not just be a few days. It could be years. And he could come and be in prison and get his message out. He was very concerned about getting, you know, converting people to his message because otherwise they're going to get be killed by in the by the army and the two hundred million martyrs of all the ages. So he was very serious about getting his message out. But um, the FBI went ahead and carried that out that assault out without waiting for him to complete his manuscript and then hopefully lead the people out. Um, other things I've learned, this is what I've learned personally in my research. Um, I, um, there is a collection of the FBI negotiation tapes and a collection of the, some, I don't think all are there, but it's a collection of the audio tapes recorded by surveillance devices, the so-called bug tapes, okay? And on April 18th, when um, what the FBI was doing, they were using the combat engineering vehicles to move the remaining private vehicles of the Branch Davidians out of the way. They were putting up concert concertina wire all around the building so that when the Branch Davidians were forced out by the planned gas attack, they would be channeled up the driveway. Well, the Branch Davidians were not stupid. They could see what was going on, you know, outside their windows. And so David Koresh called a negotiator and he, he said, um, he said, what is it that you men really want? And uh, this is on an audio tape. It, uh, is, it's introduced by Dr. Tabor. He's named it the last recorded words of David Koresh. So this can be found online. And so Koresh goes, what is it that you men really want? And the negotiator says, uh, we just want to see some progress here that you're going to come out. And uh, Corey says, well, we are making progress. I've, I'm making progress on my manuscript and then we're going to come out. We're making progress. Anyway, it in, they, they end up in a fight. The negotiator and David Corey end up shouting at each other and the tape cuts off. But what I did is I listened to the surveillance tape, audio tapes, um, after that, you know, immediately after that fight with a negotiator. And, and this is recorded by a surveillance device. And you hear two men talking. One of them um, is Steve Schneider, Corish's right-hand man. And they're all of a sudden, they're very excited about prophecies being fulfilled, prophecies about fire. They're saying, I hope so. I really hope so. Steve Schneider starts making jokes about fire, several different jokes. 
one joke was he said to the other man, he said, you always wanted to be a charcoal briquette. And I asked uh, Clive Doyle, who I interviewed at length, I said, what is he talking about? And he said, well, that man used to say that um, rather than become a branch of Indian, he'd rather be a charcoal briquette in hell. And so now, so here's Steve Schneider talking about, yeah, you said you wanted to be a charcoal br briquette, but he's not talking about going to hell. He's talking about going to heaven. Okay. And, um, and that, that man says, uh, yeah, there's nothing like a good fire to bring us to the birth, you know, the birth in heaven. Koresh compared, you know, being martyr, martyrdom and as a process of a woman travailing in birth and then the child is born and, and the, or the, the martyr is born into a new life in heaven. So, you know, years later, I could hear this very clearly on the, um, the surveillance device audio tape. I just had ordinary headphones. And I know that FBI agents had a team of FBI agents listening to the audio captured by these surveillance devices. So I really, you know, FBI agents who, you know, give interviews and they say, well, we don't know, we didn't know at the time that they, that they felt they were gonna die in a fire. Uh, I, I don't believe that because I could hear that discussion. So I'm sure they could. Um, one last thing that I'll say that I've learned in my research is that um, that morning of April 19th, when um, when the tank and gas assault began, a negotiator named Byron Sage, he's been on documentaries a lot. He, he passed away last year. He, and he was an FBI agent. He called in to the building and Steve Schneider picked up the phone and uh, Byron Sage said, we're gonna start putting tear gas in your building. But he, he emphasized, this is not an assault. And then he got on uh, the, the, um, that, their loudspeaker and he kept saying, this is not an assault, but the, the CEVs, the combat engineering vehicles are, breaking down walls in the building and spraying tear gas in and they're they're firing uh little plastic rockets called ferret rounds and when it hits something it bursts open and release cs gas and the whole time byron sage is on the loudspeaker saying this is not an assault come on out and surrender um well there's another surveillance device audio tape that captures three men in the foyer trying to fix the telephone line. The, since 1993, the FBI has asserted that um, as soon as Steve Schneider hung up the phone after talking to Byron Sage, he threw the telephone, this is the old style landline, no, no cell phones back then, or you know, no cell phones like we have today, no smartphones. Uh, he threw the phone out the front door. Um, a survivor of the fire named Graham Craddock, he was their phone man. He fixed their phones and he's testified that, um, no, the phone was sitting right there. And even if the phone had been thrown out the door, he could have hooked, he had other phones. He could have hooked those up to the line. But the telephone line had been set up by the FBI to run only to the negotiators. And that telephone line was lying on the ground outside the building. And so what happened, and Graham Craddock has shown this on Facebook in a series of aerial photos that come from the FBI. So that immediately at 6 a.m. at the beginning of this assault, a CEV, combat engineering vehicle, drove over that telephone line to the negotiators. So the telephone line to negotiators was cut off right away. And the negotiators are continuing to try to call in. This, this shows up in the major event log. Um, but the conversation that's recorded by a, um, a surveillance device in the foyer, Steve Schneider is there and he first he tells one man to go outside and try to fix the line and he didn't. He went, he couldn't fix it. So Steve Schneider then talks to Graham Craddock. He says, go outside, see if you can fix the telephone line and if you can't, just hold it up so they'll see that it's severed. And so that's what uh, Graham Craddock did. And actually the 
the major event log shows that the people in the command center in Washington, in the Hoover building, they could see him do this. They called him the phone man. Phone man did this. And they even put his name, although uh, they gave it, they realized it was Graham, but they had the wrong last name. But they knew who it was. That's how good they could see what was going on in at Mount Carmel. And um, so after a while, you know, they tried to fix the telephone line. And during the conversation, Steve Snyder says, we want to tell the negotiators about our progress on the manuscript last night. But they never did because the telephone line to negotiators was never repaired. And the, um, the um, tank and gas assault continued for five and a half hours. And the last half hour or so, we're starting around 1130 approximately, a driver in a combat engineering vehicle was given the order to drive straight through the building, the center of the building, to drive up to a concrete room at the base of the central tower. It had an open doorway. Uh, the doorway had the door had been removed when a walk-in refrigerator had been put in there, so it just had a curtain. And that's where the mothers and the children, age thirteen and younger, were in that concrete room. And the CEV drove in about the half the link, length of the CEV, CEV. And by 11, 11.49 a.m. Central Time, gassed, um, sprayed gas, sprayed two bottles of CS gas in that enclosed room. CS gas is for outdoor use. This tear gas for outdoor use, for crowd control. It's not supposed to be used in enclosed spaces. You had children in there with small lungs. You know, it's very irritating to the lungs. And so then it backs out. Um, it did a couple other things, but then by the time the, the same CEV went down to the southeast corner of the building and it started its boom into the second floor window there, it was spraying gas there, uh, and then right at 12.07, you get the first flames are visible. And um, I think I think that's approximately where David Koresh was because another survivor testified that he saw David Koresh and Steve Schneider on the second floor. And even when Steve was down in the foyer, the, the surveillance device heard him. He said, well, I'm going to go upstairs and be by David. So they were together on the second floor. So the, um, the fire started. Um, a total of 76 people died in that fire, 22 children, age 13 and younger. A lot of them were babies. Two, there were two pregnant women, and so the two pregnant women and their babies died. All those mothers died. Um, Seven teenagers died. 47 adults of different nationalities, citizenships, they died. And nine people escaped the fire. So those are some of the things we've learned over the years. We've oh, one last thing, and I'll stop talking. You can ask more questions. Because I've read the major event log, uh, you know, the different teams on site, FBI teams, they had their own logs they were keeping. Special agents in charge, they had their log. The hostage rescue team, they had their log. The negotiators had their log. And then afterwards, somebody compiled these major events to make a major event log. Oh. One last log, the command center called SIOC, Strategic Information Operations Center in the Hoover Building. The officials in SIOC, they had a log. So all of these entries from all of these logs are compiled in the major event log, which is many pages. And then there's a separate April 19th log, which I've read. And what's very clear is that the officials in the SIOC were supervising everything that happened on the ground especially on April 19th, they were, they were in the SIOC um, watching through, I guess, closed circuit television. They could hear the audio from the, that was picked up from the surveillance devices. The, the officials in SIOC knew exactly what was going on. Now for you know, FBI agents, the boss, the supervisor of the FBI agents is the attorney general. And that was attorney general, Janet Reno. And she was there in SIOC in a smaller room for the first part of that morning up until 11 a.m. And then she left to go to Baltimore to give a speech. Well, 11 a.m., 
in Washington Eastern Time corresponds with 10 a.m. Central Time in Waco. And that's when you had that whole conversation in the, that was picked up in the foyer about trying to fix the telephone line and David Koresh's manuscript. So I don't, I'm, I'm only guessing that she probably never heard that conversation. I think she, she might have stopped the assault if she had heard it. But, uh, and maybe that's why they encouraged her to go on out and um, go, go give that lecture. But, um, so it wasn't just the commanders on the ground making those decisions. You had FBI officials in uh, the command center in the Hoover building. They were also making decisions. Not that's only a long story. Yeah, no, that that's great. Not only have we learned a lot in the intervening years, uh, which you have shared with us, but there's also continuing relevance, not only in the event itself, but as different group, you can connect dots from this event and this group to uh, events in the succeeding years, including the political scene in the present. Can you touch bases? Okay. Although the Branch Davidians weren't anti-government, uh, they have, be have been grabbed onto as a source of inspiration for anti-government groups. Can you talk about some of that? Yeah. So, you know, in the news reporting uh, during the siege and especially after the fire and the deaths in the fire, uh, the Branch Davidians were stigmatized as a cult. And, uh, and uh, they, the people who survived and, and, and of course there were other Branch Davidians who weren't in the building at the time when the, that on April 19th. And um, so you had those survivors, you had the nine survivors who escaped the fire, you had children, their children who had been sent out. But everybody was traumatized, okay? Um, just like any human being would be, all right? Um, the adults had these apocalyptic beliefs about their martyrdom. They were still traumatized, you know? Uh, and, um, and they didn't have any friends, you know, they were being stigmatized in the media. And so it was people in the, uh, sort of in the anti-government milieu. And a lot of the people, it's my understanding that a lot of the people in anti-government milieu are former military people and former police officers or both. And they recognize the military assault when they see it, you know? A religion scholar like myself, I was just totally innocent. You know, I'm going like, how could they do that? But it was just hard to really grasp. It was hard for me to grasp that our federal law enforcement agents carried out a military assault against a community of civilians. But anyway, in the anti-government milieu, they recognized that. And they, um, they helped the Branch Davidians. They offered friendship to them. Some of them continue to help the Branch Davidians when they need it, the survivors. And, um, but they were very angry. And so this really gave an impetus to the um, militia, the formation of militias. And, you know, there's, there's a stone out there, a memorial that was, um, that lists all the victims of the David Koresh group who died there. And, um, that was donated by a militia group. Okay, so you can see photos of it online. Um, and uh, people with anti-government leanings have, I think they held the first uh, memorial. I didn't go to the first memorial, but a colleague of mine went and that's what he reported back. Um, and they still come to the memorials, okay. Um, and of course, a young man named Timothy McVeigh was um, he came he came as close as he could to Mount Carmel uh, while the FBI siege was going on. The FBI had pushed back the um, press to something like three miles, and they had set up their own little community. The press the reporters had set up their own community out there. They called it Satellite City, and. Um, so Dave, uh, excuse me, Timothy McVeigh was out there somewhere and he had a bunch of anti-government literature in his car and stickers and bumper stickers and so forth. So he was out there selling, but he was watching what was going on and apparently outraged at what happened, that final assault. And um, because he was a veteran of the first Gulf War. And um, so 
And the Branch Davidians do not condone Timothy McVeigh's actions at all. But on April 19th, 1993, um, Timothy McVeigh, with some assistance, carried out the Oklahoma City bombing, which blew up the federal office building in Oklahoma City and killed over 100 people and many children. There was a daycare center in that building. Um, after the Oklahoma City bombing, I think led by Gary Nessner, the negotiator, they FBI reached out to people in militias to talk to them, to humanize the FBI agents to the people in the militias. And also, from what I've read, the people in the militias were also shocked at the Oklahoma City bombing. So the militia activity sort of, um, it became quieter, you know, but they were still out there. And unfortunately, there's some crossover between anti-government people and white supremacists. And uh, so militia activity is my understanding from my reading that um, it picked up again during the presidency of um, Barack Obama. And then, um, so I call this anti-government movement and the white supremacist aspects of the white, white supremacist of this movement this hard movement. Um, I call, you know, back in the 90s when I was writing my book, I called it the Euro-American Nativist Millennial Movement. It was a nativist millennial movement waiting for a, a revolution to overthrow the government. Timothy McVeigh was, he carried out the Oklahoma City bombing to try to initiate what he called the Second American Revolution. Uh, more recently, you know, with the removal of the uh, statues of Confederate leaders, in in these circles, people started talking about, oh, we're going to have a second civil war, you know, so they've been looking for a war for quite some time. But this was a millennial movement, a lot of groups interacting with each other, a lot of individuals interacting with each other, but they didn't have a messiah. You know, they didn't have a figure that they believed was going to create the millennial kingdom they were looking for. And so a lot of them found that messiah in Donald Trump. And we're very happy when he was elected president. And uh, they believed he was fighting against the, the deep state. Some of them, uh, and this was mainly among evangelical Christians, some believed that Trump was the Cyrus Messiah predicted in Isaiah. I think that's uh, Cyrus, the king of Persia is called a, a Messiah. Uh, I think it's Isaiah 45. Uh, so Trump is, was believed by many to be the Cyrus Messiah. And, uh, and so when he didn't win the election, you know, the 2020 election, Joe Biden was elected, but Donald Trump kept saying he really did win the election and it was stolen from him. And then you have figures like, um, oh, gee, let me think of that guy's name. Excuse me a minute. Alex Jones. Yes. Okay. So so then you have a figure like Alex Jones, who also was radicalized by um, what happened to the Branch Davidians. And he had, he went on to have that radio show and, and he just became more and more radical over the decades. But so he used his, his show to encourage people to go to Washington, D.C., on January 6th, when the electoral votes were to be counted, and and storm, and he was standing there with a bullhorn, encouraging people to go into the Capitol, start stop the count, stop the steal. And he turned around and went back and sat at a table for his show. So he was smart enough not to go inside, but he was he was just encouraging everybody inside. So. So you can draw a, a direct connection largely through Alex Jones, but also the anger on the, on the radical right and, and among anti-government people. And then a lot of just ordinary citizens, like ordinary Republicans just got caught up in that and, uh, and then participated in storming uh, the Capitol and attacking police officers who were guarding Congress. Now, you've mentioned Trump, and uh, I, I couldn't believe it when I read the article in Religion Dispatches. There's even 
a connection between the Branch Davidian tragedy and Trump's kickoff of his reelection campaign. Can you talk about that? Well, yeah. So when Trump Trump's people announced that he was going to hold a rally at the Waco airport, and I thought that was really weird. <laughs> you know, uh, first of all, I've been in that airport. It's a very small airport. I just couldn't imagine a rally in there. But it turns out they had it out on the uh, runway, I guess, and. Um, and so the media, people in the media, a lot of reporters were speculating, um, uh, does this have something to do? We're in the time period of the 30th anniversary of what happened in relation to the Branch Davidians in that when their conflict with federal agents. And I and when they called me, I said, I don't know, because Donald Trump has never said anything about the Branch Davidians. He has never once said anything any, he's made no comment about the Branch of Indians. He's never expressed any sympathy for the survivors or any sorrow for what happened. Um, so I decided to play it cool and just say, I don't know if there's a connection. But as it turns out, um, the Branch of Indians survivors no longer have control of the Mount Carmel property where all those events took place in 1993. So there's another man out there. He lives there. He controls the property. He's a big support, a big Trump supporter. He believes that Trump is the Cyrus Messiah. He's got MAGA posters everywhere. Okay. But he's not a member. He was never a member of the David Koresh branch of idiots. And, but unfortunately, at least one reporter, young reporter in Texas went out there and filmed an interview with him. And then he posted on Twitter, the current, Branch Davidian pastor supports Donald Trump and plans to be at the rally. And then another young reporter, probably born after 1993, I'm going to guess, another young reporter read, saw his uh, tweet and probably watched that video of this individual who now lives at Mount Carmel. And then she wrote a Huffington Post article saying, the Branch Davidian group still exists and they are supporters of Donald Trump. Well, I'm sorry. There's just this one man out there who supports Donald Trump. He has nothing to do with the survivors of uh, the members of David Koresh's Branch Davidian group. And in fact, over the years, uh, the man who lives out there now has moved or destroyed every effort that the survivors have made to memorialize their loved ones on that property. So in the years after the fire, a, um, a series of crepe myrtle trees were, were um, planted in a field. Uh, by the way, Alex Jones uh, got together a bunch of people and they rebuilt the chapel. They built a new chapel and that was completed in 2000. So now it's kind of an old chapel, but it was a chapel intended to replace the chapel that was there in 1993 and so the crepe myrtle trees were facing the doorway of the chapel and somebody made uh, took uh, they placed a marble memorial stone under each tree with the name of each person you know with the name of a person who died including the children oh and then they planted irises underneath tree each tree so in the springtime when the grass is green and the irises are blooming and the uh tree the crepe myrtle trees bloom later and but um it's very beautiful out there in the springtime. But when um, the last survivor who had been living out there, uh, Clive Doyle, he moved away. He moved off the property in 2006. So the individual who lives there now, he first thing, he, he took up the sprinkler system, perhaps hoping that the trees would die, you know, in the summer from lack of water. But every spring they would come back. They'd get the ring in the spring and they would come back. But he did, oh, and um, one of the first things he did is he cut down the tree dedicated to David Koresh and he took the marble stone uh, with his name on it and broke it and did something with it. And, um, uh, but anyway, the trees kept coming back every spring with the rain. And so one year he had them all dug up. They were all trimmed, trimmed the branches were trimmed back. They were all dug up. And they were replanted along the driveway. So they're now along the driveway. And then each one of those memorial stones that used to be underneath each tree, 
he built a wall. He stacked them up next to the front gate, close to the front gate, and um, cemented them together to make a memorial wall. But then he had he put uh, large marble stones on top of those uh, names with the Branch Davidian names on them. And on those big marble slabs, he has names of Seventh-day Adventist prophets that he finds to be personally meaningful. You know, other than Ellen G. White and Victor Hotef, um, those other names mean nothing in the David Koresh uh, Branch Davidian group. So, you know, this man is not a member of the David Koresh Branch Davidians. And because of things that he's done to destroy the memorials to their loved ones, that's why the survivors do not hold a memorial out there anymore. So the memorial in recent years and the memorial this April 19th will be held in the Taylor Museum of Waco history, which has been very kind to permit the um, memorials to be held there. Well, I, I know you want to, to close our time together with uh, some slides. Uh, yeah. But before we do that, right, what about a few, if you were to share a few takeaways, there's a lot here, a lot of information, a lot of things we've learned. What are a few significant takeaways for folks who are watching and listening? This whole um, incident in 1993, with all the tragic deaths, including the deaths of four ATF agents, all the deaths are tragic. Tragic. Uh, this all occurred within an interactive context. You had, uh, and, and the media report, the media, news media, they were part of these interactions. So you had news media publishing cult stories, um, stigmatizing the Branch Davidians. You have the choices and the actions made by David Koresh and the Branch Davidian adults. And you also have the choices and actions of the ATF agents and the uh, and also then later the FBI agents, the FBI agents themselves, the the, the uh, commanders on the ground and the officials in the um, command center in the Hoover Building, they did not listen to their own behavioral scientists. They knew that if there was a saw, there was um, likely going to be a fire, and it really didn't take a genius to figure that out because you've got a wooden building. You have kerosene uh, lantern fuel, you know, uh, in the building, whether the fuel was poured or whether it was just in there, in their containers, you have fuel in the building. They had straw in the building to try to insulate the, the walls from the coal because electricity had been turned off. Um, and if you take a tank and drive through the building, just about anything could uh, set off that fire. Uh, but, uh, but back to the chief takeaways, um, it was an interactive situation and, um, yes, the Branch Davidians were pretty much locked into their worldview, David Koresh's predictions about their martyrdom because the federal agents were outside fulfilling his prophecies. Every aggressive action taking against, taken against the Branch Davidians made the majority of them want to stay to wait and see what was going to happen because they believed in David Koresh's prophecies. If uh, they, if the FBI had backed off and they had time, the FBI agents had time to carry out investigations, interview people who knew David Koresh. And so my research in, in internal FBI documents shows that there were plenty of reports from behavioral scientists, profilers, negotiators saying, uh, explaining the um, Branch Davidians apocalyptic theology of martyrdom. So these FBI decision makers knew that the Branch Davidians expected to die as martyrs in a fire. So why do you, why do you give it to them? <laughs> you know, that's the, that's the question. Why do they give it to them? They gave the martyrdom to them directly. And I can say that the Branch Davidians did not want to die because on that April 18th conversation on the uh, recorded by the surveillance device, you've got Steve Schneider making jokes about a fire and prophecies. But there's a woman there who says, well, there's such a thing as fear. And you read about it, but you think it's uh, a long way away. You don't think it's right here and now. So people... 
French civilians wanted to die. They were afraid to die. Uh, but uh, anyway, they were, unfortunately, their murder was delivered to them, no matter whether they set the fire or something else caused the fire. Um, another major takeaway is that um, we should be careful when government officials use a word like cult or sect or in the People's Republic of China, Zhijiao, which I probably mispronounced. So I, but, um, you know, all of these are words that are used to stigmatize small religious groups. And when a government is using a term to stigmatize small religious groups, then the government can use that to justify aggressive actions taken against the members. And so um, currently our colleague in New Religion Studies who studies the international groups the most is uh, Dr. Massimo Intervenia. And he has um, an online journal titled Bitter Winter. And he started out studying um, uh, persecution of members of small religious groups um, uh, in the People's Republic of China. And the first thing the government does is label them a Zhijiao, which uh, means heterodox sect, but um, you know, the government, the Chinese Communist Party has translated that as uh, an evil cult. Well, if it's an evil cult, you've got to arrest the people. They're a danger to the public. And, uh, but also Dr. Dr. Intervenia has studied a lot of the European groups, you know, like France has a, cult, a list of cults, excuse me, a list of sects. And uh, I think Belgium does as well. And so he reports on these things in uh, internationally. And it's very clear that when a government labels a group, religious group with a stigmatizing word, the government's gonna use that uh, to persecute, attack, perhaps kill the members of the group. Yeah, lots of important lessons uh, that we can learn. I still remember, I was working, I don't want to name it, I'm not trying to out any organization, but I was working for a Christian organization at the time, and I still remember I had been following the uh, the standoff, and uh, an evangelical Christian came skipping in when I was at work, uh, basically gleeful that the evil cultists had gotten what they deserved. Uh, so there's, we still have this great stigma uh, and I constantly in social media am uh, trying to provide an alternative and links to works like yours and, and Dr. Intervenia. Um, it's just a problematic uh, concept and term that is used uh, in, in awful ways, not only in this country, but around the world. So th thank you for, for your work and for bringing that, uh, kind, those kinds of things to our attention. Well, thank you for your work and, and trying to counteract that. And I would just say that if people want to see the videos of the Branch Davidians and their children that were uh, that were made during the siege, just uh, do a search on YouTube for Inside Mount Carmel. And I think there's uh, those videos were divided into seven segments and uploaded, uh, not seven, I think 12 segments, and uploaded to YouTube. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Well, Catherine, thank you so much again for coming on and, and sharing this. And uh, I just want to draw everyone's attention. Please look at the podcast description and look at the links. Uh, seek out uh, the YouTube page uh, for Catherine and uh, and watch that in her books. And again, thank you so much for your scholarship and all that you do. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for what you do, too. Thanks.